Another case against Uber to define its workers as either employees or independent contractors. What does this mean? Why does it matter? Kevin Smith from Shepard Mullen joins us to Lawsplain. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there wherever you might be. We're jumping right into it today. We're going to be talking about Uber and whether or not the state of New York will consider that their workers are employees or independent contractors, which, as we'll see, will have some legal consequences. But before I get ahead of my skis or paint myself into a corner, let's say hello to our guest, Kevin Smith from Shepherd Mullen. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Lawrence. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks very much for having me here today. No worries, though. Thank you for joining us. Wanted to talk about this matter of Lowry. And as I understand it, it was, uh, I guess it was an administrative law proceeding. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about what happened. I know it's about uh, unemployment claims here, but tell us the facts of the case. Uh, what what happened to bring us here? Sure. Uh, as we all know, and probably many of us have been in a car, an Uber car, to take uh, take a ride from here to there. But in, in this case, Mr. Lowry, a driver, had signed up to be a driver for Uber um, in 2017 in upstate New York, which is uh, outside of New York City. And they classify their markets between upstate and downstate. Here, it's upstate. And at the time of his application, he he signed up for the driver app that, they, that we all see that they use to be directed for rides and pickups for customers. He underwent the vetting process to become a driver, he had to have a driver's license, obviously, a vehicle registration, proof of insurance, and an appropriate car. And uh, Uber told him in general terms that he needed to have a car that was no more than 15 years old, at least four doors, five seatbelts, working windows, air conditioning, heating. And then he needed to be approved by Uber to be a driver. And once approved, uh, he and signed a uh, Uber technology application agreement, he became a driver and in 2017 started driving for Uber up in upstate New York. And Uber paid him through its its uh, platform of collecting customer fares. Uber would keep 20 to 30% of the fare, but give the driver the rest of it, along with any tips that the driver uh, may have earned during that ride with that customer. Uh, at some point, he either had his application or his app account deactivated by Uber, whether it was because of poor recommendations by previous customers or some other reason that the facts aren't entirely clear. He stopped driving for Uber and then he applied to the New York State Department of Labor for unemployment insurance, which is what employees are permitted to receive if they are let go by their employer for no reason that they caused. Um, whether it's a violation of some misconduct or other instances of misbehavior. And that's that's the rub there, right? So that's the the distinction there. That's the the to get those, he has to be the employee and not an independent contractor. And of course, you know, Uber, uh, the the business model uh, widely known around the country is hiring a bunch of independent contractors. And so now it goes before an administrative law proceeding. So walk us through that procedure. It's a little different than a regular court. And so bring us up to where we are today with that final decision. Sure. So he, as you mentioned, you know, he did need to be an employee to collect unemployment insurance. Uber said he's not an employee, he was an independent contractor. And so when he applied for the unemployment insurance benefits of the Department of Labor, Uber challenged that or contested that decision. And so the Department of Labor 
had to render its own decision. It made an initial, what they call an initial determination, found that he was entitled to the unemployment insurance benefits. Uber appealed within the appeals process at the administrative agency. There was then a hearing and a full-blown hearing in front of what they call an administrative law judge. So it's kind of like a mini court, but within the agency at the Department of Labor, that administrative law judge collected a large number of facts, both from Uber as well as from what they would call the employee or the driver, to establish that he was either an employee or an independent contractor. The administrative law judge found that he was an employee, ruled in favor of collecting unemployment insurance benefits for that person. And then Uber further appealed within the Department of Labor and they at the administrative board, they call it, they ruled in favor again of the employee. And then Uber took that decision and they were able to jump past the trial court within the New York Supreme Court and go to the what they call the appellate division, which is the intermediate appellate court in New York. And that court ruled in favor of the of Lowry, in favor of the employee, to find that there was, quote unquote, substantial evidence of an employment relationship to allow for the unemployment insurance benefits to be collected. Now, this decision, it, it implicated a lot of things here with unemployment benefits. So it decided who was going to pay for those, who was going to be reimbursed for those, and ultimately who received those benefits. But in addition to that, this distinction is very important in terms of employment law because it triggers a bunch of other legal liabilities. There's there's taxes, there's liability, there's possible overtime. So you know, for, for the benefit of our audience out there that does not have a law degree, walk us through some of those additional liabilities that you sign on for if you hire employees versus independent contractors? Sure. And it's a very important point, Lawrence. And it's not just about the unemployment insurance benefits. If if a person who's working for the business is found to be an employee, that business could be liable for paying that person the minimum wage. In some places, it's, it's $15 an hour now. Other places, depending on where you are, it could be $7.25. But also overtime compensation, where if the person worked more than 40 hours in a week, they the business would be required to pay them overtime. Payroll taxes, other taxes that are associated with employment, including Social Security, benefit taxes at the federal level, FICA taxes, and then it, as well as potentially health insurance benefits, depending on what fringe benefits that business provides to its other employees, uh, to the extent that it has other employees. So basically, it makes an employee a lot more expensive than an independent contractor, at least from the employer point of view, right? From the employer point of view, agreed 100%. It also limits flexibility that the employer or business may have in terms of keeping on other people to work, including that, that particular individual. That individual might even want their own flexibility to say, you know what, I'm not coming in today to do X, Y, and Z that I've contracted with you to do. And they have the flexibility to do that. Whereas if you're an employee, that generally doesn't happen. You need to come in to work when the employer tells you to come in to work. You know, I think that's like, that's the give take nature of Uber. And I think that's always been sort of the, uh, why it's been, I think a little bit difficult to pin it down in some places, whether or not it's an independent contractor versus, you know, versus the uh, employee status. And so this particular case was decided on sufficient control. And you were alluding to some of those factors that the court was deciding on, you know, that, that, that business relationship, you know, the app and, you know, having to have your car, you know, within kind of a certain specification, but you just mentioned 
mentioned there that, you know, with Uber, one of the things that people know is you're you're free to come and go as you please, not like a regular employee. But the court looked at this and they they uh, went down just sort of a list of these factors. Can you walk us through some of those factors that they considered when they made their decision? I'm sure. So, you know, the, the, the most important or most relevant inquiry is whether the purported employer, as they call it, exercise control over the results produced or the means used to achieve those results. And so, you know, for this case, they looked at all of the things that I mentioned before in terms of the app, signing the technology agreement, making sure that that person had the appropriate car or vehicle to use, controlling how much money was collected from the rider and then distributing it to the employee, to the, to the, the driver. And then also, you know, overseeing the behavior of the driver. You know, there were certain minimum requirements that the, the board and then ultimately the court looked at to assess all of those things. And, and what they found essentially was that since Uber controlled the means used to, to drive the rider from one place to the other, there was sufficient control in the record to to determine that this person was an employee versus an independent contractor. I didn't see a bright line rule there, but basically what you're saying is the the more control and exercise, the more likely someone was going to go from independent contractor to a regular employee, right? Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of similar to the scenario where you might have a plumber that you your maintenance company has engaged or contracted with to fix your your plumbing in your apartment complex when that plumber is on your maintenance staff you know they can come in with all the equipment that your company has provided and they fix whatever they need to fix in the building whereas if they contract outside with someone who's got their own equipment who provides services to other entities or other apartment buildings and they can show up when they tell you they're showing up to fix your plumbing, that's more of an independent contractor relationship than the one where the person's on the maintenance staff of the building. One thing I was a little confused about was the uh, the, the precedential value that this case was going to have. You know, it started as an administrative proceeding, but I guess from what you were saying, it ended up in some some actual courts. And so I guess how widespread will this decision be in terms of precedent, meaning impacting other similar cases around the state of New York? Sure. So within, uh, you know, the legal terminology, there is persuasive authority and then binding authority. I mean, that's a distinction between, you know, what may be, what a subsequent court might be required to follow versus what may have some persuasive effect on their, that subsequent court's decision-making. And here, the decision is limited to what they call the third department in upstate New York. It basically is a court that ultimately does decide most of the administrative rulings that come out of Albany and or the Unemployment Insurance Board. And where, whereas this decision did not come out of downstate New York or New York City. And so there's no binding authority on the courts in lower New York or downstate New York with this decision. However, uh, without a doubt, this decision will be referred to by other applicants for unemployment insurance benefits to seek that benefit and will use similar facts to, to help them prove their case or their claim that they should be entitled to unemployment insurance benefits, not only in the gig economy, but also in other circumstances or places where an employer or a business may be 
using a, a worker that they believe is an independent contractor, but the person thinks that they are an employee and should be entitled to unemployment insurance benefits. In my experience, when it comes to making this distinction with workers, you know, whether independent contractor or actual employee, I've always found there's been a degree of fog in that distinction. And so and it'll change, you know, depending on industry to industry and over time, even, you know, some industries, it's a little foggier than others. But the, the gig economy seems to have a difficult time with this. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, you know, when you say gig economy, meaning, you know, drivers of other customers or riders and then even delivery services, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's it, the business is heavily dependent on the customer requests on the spur of the moment, which technology has allowed us to be able to do in today's world. And so that immediate requirement to provide a service there's a need for the, the control that the app provider is having over who gives and who provides the service ultimately. So there's a give and take in terms of people who want to be able to, to on the spur of the moment, provide a service to somebody else, but and have the flexibility to either say yes or no, they don't want to do that versus making sure that the customer is being serviced appropriately and in a timely fashion. I think it's just a difficult situation. Well, Kevin, it was great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app per the usual. We'll cite our sources for this episode on our website in the show notes at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And lastly, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clitty. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 